Hello and welcome to the Hive Radio Storytellers podcast. Each month we select a theme and our group create and record fictional pieces for your listening pleasure. I'm Diane Gray and I have the pleasure of taking you through our theme for April, which is back in the day. Stories triggered by memories of childhood. Firstly, we have a story that considers things young people take home. Dandelion Day by Lorna Wyndham. How was I, a mere eight-year-old, supposed to know that something else might be attracted to the precious gold jewels I picked? Something on the end of a rope? Something bigger than me over which I'd no control? When Grandad saw me with the sheepdog puppies at his farm, he said, <coughs> She's away with animals. Runs in the family. But Mam had been adamant. I'm not having any fleas and dirty paws in my house. I've enough with you. And yet, dah. Mam could be like that. Short-sighted. Nothing to do with aspects. I just heard Miss Killigrew when Mam refused to let me look after the screw hamster at half term. Well, now I've made a new friend, who I've decided to call Alexander, cos he was great, wasn't he? I didn't ask him to follow me. I even tried to show him away and wave me flowers at him, but his teeth chomped at the green stalks. Then I thought, maybe he's lonely and Mum's at home on her own. Why not let them meet? I'm full of good ideas, me. I left the gate open and in he came. I was sure Mum would love him. I did. Pity about his coat and he did stink a bit. A lot, actually. But he trickled eyes, hadn't he? I almost cleaned him up, so he made a good first impression. But one look at the tin bath on the nail by the back door told me he wouldn't fit. Then Mum lifted the net at the scullery window. If I was to tell you she was unhappy, I'd be lying. She was livid. Her face a bonfire and eyes like Catherine wheels. She opened her mouth and screamed, My yard's full of holes! You could hear. Every window bang over streets around. I moved from one foot to another and made myself taller as I said, I brought these for you, Mum. I thrust the half-eaten bouquet at her. It was no good. I think the rising steam behind Alexander gave the game away. It looks like the yard's full of something else. Trust Dad to be home. It'll do me vegetables some good anyhow. Best fetch the shovel from the cool house, our boy, while I find this beast some water. Beast? He's mine, and he's called Alexander because he's great. Oh, aye. Dad filled the bucket from the yard tap, and Alexander's eyes never left the pail. Come on, lad. That treacherous beast followed him all the way back to the field. For some strange reason... My family remember this incident every year and call me first Dandelion Day. Oh, and that's why there's always a milk bottle full of golden jewels on our sideboard. Performed by Lorna Wyndham 
and David Bye. We now have another story of caring for all things great and small. Worms by Delphine Blenkinsop. I'm digging with my spade in the front garden. It's not as big as Grandar's, but he's a lot bigger than me. He's got big, baggy black trousers and short black hedgehog hair. He smokes tabs and he's called Bugsy, but I've heard his real name because Nanny says it when she's cross. It's Barzy Bugger. I love my granddaughter. He takes me up to bed and he tells me stories in the dark about the squirrel that went to London to see the Queen. But whether it got there or not, I'll never know, because granddaughter usually falls asleep before me. Anyway, back to my very important work. Today, the worms that live here are going to have a big surprise. They are going to visit my favourite place in the whole wide world. It's called the Ferry Hill Library. And it's not very far away. It's just down the bank, on the pavement, all the way. So if Nanny or Grandad or Mam gets worried, they only have to look over the front gate to see me sitting on the wall with my pet worms. I've thought about this a lot. I'm going to take them in my pink plastic potty and I've found a length of rope lying around that would help. You see, I can feed it through the handle and off we go. So that's the plan. Now, all I have to do is dig up a few more lucky worms and put them in the comfortable old potty. Only now, it's a super deluxe, fully fitted worm carriage of the highest quality and style. And a very important piece of equipment in the worm world. And off we go. I hope the worms can see where they're going. I shouldn't imagine they've been this way before, so it'll be a change for them. Right, lift the latch through the gate and down the street. These worms are very lucky. Most fortunate and prized worms. They'll be the envy of their friends. Have you been far on your travels, Henry? Oh, yes. I went on a grand journey to Ferry Hill Library one magical day in the warm season, Florence, my dear. Oh, really? By your brave, they'd say. I shouldn't think that many worms have been on holiday before, especially to the library when they see all those wonderful books with big fat pages and read about Lancelot of the Lake, my favourite, and the other knights of the round table. I hope you worms aren't cold, because I'm wearing my favourite red sparkly cardigan with the green squirrel on the pocket that Nanny knit me for my birthday, so I'm snuggly warm. And here we are. There. Gently does it. 
I'll put them on the wall so they can see the library and its books. And the people inside, reading about exciting adventures. And the animals of the misty woods. <gasps> no! Oh, poor things! Grandad's just tipped them out and I'm being marched back up the hill really fast. I can't hear what he's saying. I'm being stretched the full length of my arm and he's saying something, but I don't care. I'm more worried about my worms. They won't know where they are. Worms was performed by Delphine Blenkinsop. Coming up next, we look at some school day memories and taking up opportunities when they arise. One Glorious Moment by Andrew Ball Kevin wasn't like other children he met, but he never understood why. Well, not until many years later. Hardly anyone had even heard of Asperger's syndrome when he was small. Less still thought of testing him for it or, crucially, telling him of its symptoms or what it meant. As it was, he couldn't explain to his anxious, socially isolated, often lonely, depressed inner self why he found it so difficult to interact with others his age at school, why he was so painfully shy and withdrawn, or why it was that he'd become very bright and knowledgeable about some interests or subjects, yet struggle with others. Most teachers in those days wouldn't have heard of Asperger's either, it having only just been named as a condition. Yet, deep down, instinctively, there was one thing he knew he could do a damn sight better than many of his peers. He could act. From an early age, it baffled Kevin how, whatever the qualities of his school's end-of-term plays or nativities, you could always bet that the most boisterous and arrogant pupils would get cast in all the plum roles and then prove astonishingly bad at them. Reading out their lines, those they could remember, as if being held hostage or examining the contents of a packet of peanuts, and being misdirected by well-meaning teachers to always look at the audience. The effect usually came across as that of a bunch of emotionless zombies, more wooden than a sale at an antiques warehouse. Ah, but could Kevin ever get up the nerve to show them all how he felt it should be done? No. Best not take the risk. Failure would be too humiliating to bear. So as with so much else, he kept his thoughts to himself. Better not draw attention or cause a fuss. Anyway, he was already the bully's favourite target at his secondary school, a place with no time for such plays anymore. Kevin's chance, it seemed, by his teens had come and gone. Then one day, in an English lesson, Mrs Henderson handed round copies of a poem she wanted every desk in pairs to try reading out in front of the class, each pairing dividing between themselves who should read what in the dozen or so stanzas of a comic work entitled It's Not Fair. Many years later, aside from the poem being a charming lament from a teacher's perspective about a pupil whose standard response to everything he had to do was It's not fair. Kevin had to admit to others he'd forgotten the author's name or even many of the lines it contained. But he certainly remembered being paired with another shy lad at his desk, Jamie, and what happened next. Sure enough, as several other pairs were called to the front with their attempts, 
Kevin was irritated, like the teacher in the narrative, to hear so little insight, humour, awareness, or just any emotion from his fellow students. Right, he decided. You take these few stanzas as the child and leave the rest as the teacher to me, Kevin had whispered to Jamie. This time, he'd nothing to lose. When their turn came to face the class and Jamie finished his first hesitant, same as all the rest, read, Kevin simply pictured the teacher character in his mind and proceeded to give everyone else in the room a lesson in caring about the words on the page and what lay behind them. With each line, he extracted every ounce of the cynicism and sighing sense of resignation, the despair, the world-weariness, the frustration he could imagine the teacher felt at having to deal with that pupil again, predicting that this child would always use it's not fair as his go-to saying whatever happened to him forevermore in life. At first, this got a few giggles. Then more. And more. Pupils who'd been whispering at the back of the class during most of the reads stopped. With every nuance, the whole class was now laughing, hooked on his every word, in the palm of his hand. Better than that. For the first time he'd ever known, Kevin's classmates weren't ignoring him as usual or just being cruel. No, they were laughing with him at him. And somehow that meant a world of difference. Kevin ended with a bow, and unlike the polite, sedate response to all the other groups who read that afternoon, the whole room stood in applause as he and poor, overshadowed Jamie returned to their seats. Mrs Henderson exclaimed, Wow! Where did that come from? Kevin replied he'd simply followed the author's intent and secretly thought it sad that even she had become so used to the zombie method school of acting that she was lost for words when somebody actually did the piece justice. When the bell rang for end of classes that day, ten minutes later, peers who'd hardly spoken to Kevin thus far came up and patted him on the back, praising his performance and congratulating him as if he'd won something. And in a way, he had a precious memory. For as he walked home, he knew this great feeling was too good to last. Oh, how quickly youths can forget the pyrrhic victories the loners in their midst occasionally manage. Tomorrow, things would return to how they'd been before. Nothing would really be changed by this, and little capital could be made from it for now. But for one glorious, fleeting moment, this lad had proved to himself and those around him that he wasn't just the dull, dumb-looking nobody they had all thought him to be. Performed by Andrew Ball Young people have fantastic ideas and believe they can happen, as seen in this next story. Newspaper Wings by Anne Ridley we are the Backlane Gang. I am the leader. Why? I think it's because I have the best imagination and I'm not scared. Nobody has actually spoken about this out loud. It's just happened like that. I am nine. 
Me nana says I'll soon be in double figures and will then be sensible. I don't like the sound of that. At the end of the back lane, the sun goes down. It's like a huge orange ball some nights. It must be the west end of the lane. I'm learning things like this in geography. I'm finding out new words like orbit and galaxy and northern lights. Dad says the proper name is Aurora Borealis. He wishes he'd been able to say these things. Too late now for me. Go while you have the health and enthusiasm, my little lass, he says. Discover. He's always going on about enthusiasm. Says life is pointless without it. Our gang watches the sun go down. Then we see the moon. We run up the lane and jump high at the end, trying to jump up into the moon. Whoosh! The sounds we make help us jump higher. Five of us sit on the curb, sucking skinny licorice sticks and talk about how we can reach it and what we'll do when we get there. We need wings, I say. We talk about this, how to get wings. Ask your mams, I tell them. Then we go in as it's getting dark, through our wooden back doors, into our yards and into our lighted kitchens. My mum is the best of them all. She has great ideas. I'll have a think while you sleep, she says. Next morning, there they are, laid out on the table beside the cornflakes. Beautiful, just the right size. I stroke them. Off to school now, she says. They'll be here when you come home. They're good, say the gang looking at my wrists and ankles. Just like feathers, says one. Should work, says the other. Mam tied them on with string, I say. Aye, maybe you could have painted them to cover the newspaper print, suggests the small one. Might make them too heavy, I reply. Aye, she says. Just three of us tonight. They haven't got any wings. My excitement drops like a stone. We wait for the moon. We are silent. And then they say, they'll try later. In the middle of the night, they'll come out. Right, see you tomorrow and we can tell each other what we've seen. I am putting on what I've heard as a brave face. I stand alone and speak to the moon. It gleams kindly. I'm coming now, on my newspaper wings, to discover your mysteries. I run and run and run. Didn't see you there? Ah, oh, must have missed you by a few minutes. I went really late, had to creep out in my pyjamas. Then the pretending ends. Then I am ten. Newspaper Wings, written and recorded by Anne Ridley. School days are important for children to grow and achieve. In this piece, full of hope and promise, written by Chris Jackson, called Pick Me.
Peggy always looked forward to the start of the term after Easter, walking smartly from the school lane, past the cloakroom with its strong smell of carbolic soap, into her classroom. She sat down next to Susan, giving her the usual nod. Like her best friend and most other seven-year-olds in class, Peggy was gangly and thin, but she knew she stood out from the rest, thanks to her bright red hair, plaited with green satin ribbons. If only that could help her become a monitor. She was always being overlooked in favour of others for those roles of importance she longed to try. The class responded as usual with, Good morning, Miss Wilson, as their teacher's shrill voice greeted them and her steely blue eyes surveyed them. Miss Wilson herself, an avid churchgoer, Sunday school and brownies leader, members of the WI and teacher at the same primary school for the last 19 of her 40 years, didn't really like children. Perhaps that was why she'd never quite become headmistress. Her mother had persuaded her to become a teacher. And now, with streaks of grey showing in her black hair, tied in a tight bun with a severe-looking face, she was considered a spinster, unlikely to ever marry. Yet today, she wore an immaculate green flowered blouse with pleated skirt. Her thin legs, clad in American tan stockings, slipped into her highly polished brogues. After doing the register, Miss Wilson began, This term's monitors are... Peggy took a deep breath and whispered inwardly, Pick me, pick me. But no... Edward was first to be chosen as register monitor. Then Bobby was selected as key monitor. He sat bold, upright, as if he'd just been awarded senior commander for head of security. Bobby jumped up to collect the colour-coordinated keys and began unlocking the cupboards. Elizabeth, you will be ink monitor. Keep the inkwells topped up and clean. Do not give anybody an extra pen without my permission. Betty thanked Miss Wilson profusely. Peggy sat still with nervous agitation. Only two monitor positions left. Pick me, please, pick me. Thomas was pink as milk monitor. He beamed like a Cheshire cat who'd got all the cream, literally. He'd be able to drink any spare bottles of leftover milk at the end of playtime. Peggy sighed, oh well. Maybe next term. Margaret! Peggy looked up, surprised, into Miss Wilson's stare. You will be dinner monitor. And please, be extra vigilant, as Mrs Binks, the cook, is heavily pregnant with his seventh child. She'll need your help. Peggy glanced at Susan and grinned with excitement. Peggy went out into her dinner duties in amongst six tables of infants, deftly, quickly helping Mrs Binks, as instructed, to dish out the mince and dumplings with mash, turnip and carrots, followed by chocolate sponge and pink custard. Once she'd finished her own meal and swept the floor, Mrs Binks rewarded Peggy with a shortbread biscuit, saying thanks, pet, wearily. Peggy gladly took the biscuit, put it into her own knitted bag inside a handkerchief. Miss Wilson, in her classroom, took out her own handkerchief 
and wiped them out. Having finished a simple portion of mince and dumplings, as her waistline seemed to be expanding on a daily basis, she then discreetly took a gulp from the hip flask of a gin hidden in her wicker basket, powdered her nose and thought lustily of the drive later in the Morris Minor. Finishing her monitoring duties, Peggy ran out into the schoolyard sunshine where Susan met her and explained, Lynn's brought a mam's washing line in and they're going to play skips with it. Two of the taller, older girls in the yard took the end of the rope and began turning the washing line. Once the rhythm was established, Lynn jumped into the ropes, skipping deftly like a gazelle, her blonde ponytail bouncing, her arms on occasion holding onto her dress, trying to cover her not-so-white knickers. Lynn chanted, I call in my very best friend and her name is Mary. Mary jumped in, skipping together with Lynn, chanting, Mary likes sugar, Mary likes tea, Mary likes sitting on a mammy's knee. Then Lynn jumped out as Mary continued, Spanish dancer, turn around, Spanish dancer, touch the ground. Spanish dancer, turn around, and the ropes went faster and faster. While this happened, Mary continued to chant, If your birthday's in April, come and join me, come and join me. Peggy thought, this skipping lark will clearly need some practice, so don't pick me just yet. She shared the biscuit with Susan as they crossed the yard. The rest of the afternoon fell into that lovely rhythmic pace. Peggy's skipping home, after the last bell sounded, singing those songs she'd learnt in the yard on that perfect day at last. A little later, Miss Wilson undid the two top buttons of her lawn blouse, gulped another mouthful of the perfumed gin, sprayed herself with Hartnell in Love cologne and put another slick of Max Factor's rose pink to her thin lips and stepped out into the late sunshine, and then into Mr Baxter's gleaming Morris Minor. As she slid in beside him, she carefully hitched her skirt just above her knee, and glanced demurely at Mr Baxter. The night is young, she thought. Headmistress Miss Brown looked out through her office net curtains, seeing Miss Wilson depart. She shook her head. This will surely end in tears, she thought and looking at Miss Wilson's ever-expanding waistline, probably baby's tears. We hope you enjoyed our look at the memories from back in the day and hope you will join us next month for our new podcast. If you have enjoyed listening, please let us know. You can email on hive underscore radio underscore storytellers at outlook.com or leave comments on our Facebook page. Search for Hive Radio Storytellers. Our group meets every Wednesday, virtually at the moment. If you're interested in getting involved in writing, performing or producing audio drama and podcasts, please contact us by email. Again, it is hive underscore radio underscore storytellers at outlook.com or... You can always leave comments on our Facebook page, Hive Radio Storytellers, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.